Turn with me. I want to say a special thank you to Brother Tim. He arranged to, to get the gravel, and it was donated. Amen. And we, we're working on maybe getting a little bit more. And then Brother brother Larry and Brother Tim were down here last night spreading gravel. And, and Brother Larry, I don't know where he found it, but he found a backhoe. Amen. And they they, they done some cutting and, and cutting the grade down and putting the gravel back in. And, and all said and done, we've been blessed. Amen. I walked up last night, and Brother Larry's brother got off the backhoe and walked up to me and said, Pastor, can't explain it, but God just made a way. Amen. Larry called, and I was available, and the tractor was available, and here I am. said, God's blessing you. Amen. Out of the mouth of, uh, of just two or three, I'll take it. Amen. God's blessing us. Amen. Amen. And he's worthy. You ought to praise him for it. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 7. This morning, we are going to continue our expository study through the book of Romans. This is our 43rd lesson in the book of Romans. We've been in it for over a year. Amen. And we are just now in the middle of chapter 7. Amen. It's been a very, very good study, a very strong study in the doctrine. Amen. A very strong study in uh, what God has done for us and what God is continuing to do for us. And we're in this section now where uh, Paul is detailing the law and sin and what it means to live in the flesh. And when we get to chapter 8, we're going to be talking about what it means to live in the Spirit. Amen. And that's where that's where we're going. That's the end goal. Amen. We've been filled with the Spirit. Amen. We've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that Spirit within us gives us life. Amen. But we're right now, we're in the middle of a segment where Paul takes a brief moment to defend the integrity of the law. Everything we've heard about the law up to this point has been negative. We've seen the law cast in negative light. And so Paul makes the case in verses 7 through 13 of Romans chapter 7 that the law is not the problem. Sin was the problem. Amen. And in our last lesson, we covered the first half of that passage, and this morning, we're going to cover the second half of it. And in this passage, Paul presents sin, and he personifies it as a domineering evil tyrant that abuses and exploits the law in order to accomplish its own negative purpose. It is a killer. It is a, it is a tyrant that has used the law. It distorts the law and it uses the law for a purpose much lower than the purpose for which God has made the law. Amen. God made the law for good. God made the law to demonstrate for us righteousness and godliness and what is pleasing unto God. But sin has used the law for evil. And so consider the Garden of Eden. God established a law in the Garden of Eden. God put man and woman in the garden. He gave them everything to partake of in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the law was that Adam and Eve could not eat the fruit of that tree or else they would die. Amen. That was the law that God established. The law was placed there for their protection. It was there for their own good. It was there to preserve them. It was there because... It is true that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. Amen. But Satan used the law 
to plant a seed of doubt into Adam and Eve's heart, and he provoked them to violate the law. He suggested to Eve that, that God only restricted that particular tree from them because he was keeping back some good thing for himself. God was holding back the, the better part. Amen. That's the best tree in the garden. That's the only really good one there is. Amen. And God's keeping that one for himself. And so Satan used the law to encourage sin. He used the law to encourage Eve to transgress against God. Paul's point in the passage is that that doesn't mean that the law is a bad thing. Amen. The law was put there for a good purpose. The law was put there for their protection. And the law, because of its relationship to God, is holy. It's righteous. It's good. But sin has used the law in a negative way. And once again, this morning, I'm going to read the whole passage. And then we'll pick up where we left off last time. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 7. And it says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. Amen. We covered verses 7 through 9 last time. And so I'm going to pick up with verse 10, and I'm going to read it again just to kind of set the stage of where we are. It says, And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. That's a brief single-sentence verse, and the meaning is pretty straightforward. The, the law was ordained to life. It was, it was intended to bring life. That was the original purpose of the law. It was designed to teach us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. And if the law was fulfilled in the sense in which it was given, it gives life. Amen? Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5 says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. This is Old Testament. This is law. And it says, Which if a man do this, if he does the law, he shall live. That's what the word says. If a man does this, he shall live. If he does the commandments, he's going to live in them. For I am the Lord. God's law was originally intended to bring life. It was there to preserve. It was there to protect. It was there to show us godliness and righteousness and the fullness of life. And if a man obeyed the law, he would maintain a right relationship with God. And if a man has a right relationship with God, then he's going to live in the blessings of God. And the blessings of God are life. Amen. The blessings of God are, are the overflowing provision of God. It's the goodness of God. If a man 
lives in harmony with the law of God, then he maintains a right relationship with God, and he'll live in, in the blessing of God. Amen? You have to forgive me. My voice is trying to give out on me. However, having said all of that, that if a man lived according to the law, he'd live in the blessings of God, what happened was that which was ordained to life, Paul says, I found to be death. That which I, I thought was going to bring life to me instead brought death to me. Life was the intended purpose. That was what it was made for. But death was the actual result. And the culprit was sin. The sin nature caused us to violate the law. And when we violated the law, we became subject to the penalty of death. So that which was given for good was used for evil. Amen? The law can bring life only if it's perfectly obeyed. According to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There is no one. Until Jesus Christ came, there was no perfect man. So the law was never perfectly obeyed. The law was never practiced in the way that it was given. Therefore, the result of the law, instead of life as it was given for, as it was ordained for, the result of the law was death. Sin used the law to bring death instead of life. The reason for that is simple. The law is black and white. It is for all you computer guys, it's binary. It's either on or it's off. It doesn't see any middle ground. It allows no room for mercy. Once a man has transgressed the law in one point, the scripture tells us he's guilty of the law in all points. Once he's crossed the law, he is guilty of the law, he's transgressed the law, amen, and he has broken the whole thing because the law only sees guilt or innocent. The innocent receive life. The guilty receive death. That's the way the law works. The law had no means by which to restore a sinner. The law had no means by which to, to save the guilty from death. Under the law, sins were rolled ahead. Amen. They were always there. Amen. The blood made a covering and faith worked with obedience to push that sin ahead. But it was pushed all the way ahead of the cross because the only thing that could deal with sin was the life-saving blood of Jesus Christ. The law didn't have a provision to take away the transgression of sin. The law had no means by which to overcome even a single act of law-breaking. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 said, For as many as are above the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things, which are written in the book of the law to do them. All of them. Unless you've done it completely, unless you fulfilled it entirely, the law couldn't bring the life that it was intended to bring. The law was ordained to life, but that life hinged on obedience to all the points of the law. So from the moment that sin deceived Eve, from the moment that the sin nature took root in the human heart, it was impossible. 
it would not be done. Every man would sin and fall short of the glory of God. And by the very nature of the law, once the law was violated at any point, it condemned the violator to death. That's how the law brought death instead of life. Now verse 11 says, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. So verse 11 turns back to the personification of sin, which picks up on a theme that we discussed last time that we were in this passage. Sin is like an assassin. It's like a killer lying in wait to kill us. But Sin doesn't have a weapon. Its only desire is our death, but sin is an assassin without a weapon. It doesn't have any means by which to kill us. It doesn't have any means by which to carry out its attack against us until the law came. And when the law came, even though the law was given for good, sin used the law as an opportunity to destroy us. So it tricked us into disobeying God's law. Sin took occasion of the commandment. Sin took occasion of the law. It saw its opportunity and it deceived me. And when it deceived me, it killed me. It slew me. Sin took advantage of the law and used the law to kill me. The point here is that the culprit is sin, not the law. Sin is the enemy that attacked me. Sin is the enemy that killed me. The law was only the instrument that sin used to accomplish that terrible deed. Sin caused my death, not the law. Sin used the law to cause my death, but sin was the culprit. I want to point out real quick how sin uses the law. Sin deceived me. The word for deceived is the same word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 when he said that the serpent beguiled thee. That beguiling is the deception of the sin. It's the way that it works. Sin's attack on Eve was not a, a straightforward attack. The serpent twisted the word of God. The serpent deceived Eve into believing that God was withholding some good thing from her, that God was keeping some good thing for himself. So sin beguiled or sin tricked Eve. Sin caused Eve to believe, amen, that there was a problem, that there was a circumstance there where God was trying to rob her of some good thing. It caused her to resent God, think that God didn't have her best, her, her wasn't looking out for her, wasn't thinking the best of her. I'm going to take it, I'm going to switch to this microphone. Amen? Everybody say praise the Lord. The whole argument that sin made was built on lies. None of it was true. None of it was real. None of it was uh, uh, based in any kind of truth. Sin convinced Eve that 
God was trying to subjugate them by keeping them lower than him. Sin suggested that if Adam and Eve would just eat the fruit, it would make them like God. It would put them on the same level as God. They could be where God was, and God was trying to keep them from being where he was. He was trying to hold them down. He was trying to keep them back. He was trying to deny them some good thing that was both desirable and beneficial. And because of that, he stirred up resentment in Eve's heart, the belief that sin at the root of it is doubt, doubt in God. After God has created us and put us in this garden, he's given us every good thing and he's given us every provision we could ever desire, somehow Eve doubts that God has given her the best. Somehow she becomes convinced that the one tree that she can't have is the best tree in the garden. It looks good. It smells good. It, it's got to be something that would taste good and, and, and the benefit of it is it can make me like God. That's how sin always works. Sin works through deception. It works through half-truths. It, it makes it tempting. It makes a, a suggestion that tempts you by presenting a lie that is wrapped in a partial truth. God was aware of the difference between good and evil. God knew the difference. He had the knowledge of good and evil. And yes, that was a knowledge that Adam and Eve did not have. And in the sense that they would share a common awareness of good and evil with God by partaking of the fruit, then that would certainly give Adam and Eve something in common with God. But that wasn't, that's the half-truth. The idea that if you eat this, you'll be like God. Well, in a way, you will. You'll know what God knows. You're going to have the knowledge that God has. You're going to understand the difference between good and evil. But the deception is that they would become like God. The suggestion was that they'd be like God in every way, not just in that one point of common knowledge, but that they would be like God. Eat this fruit and you'll become God's peer. Eat this fruit and you'll be elevated from the lowly plane of existence that you live on now to a higher plane of existence that only God lives on. That wasn't true. That was never true. But that was the heart of the deception. It's, it's a little bit of a half-truth mixed with a lie that creates an idea that is absolutely false. Sin never delivers on its promise. Sin never delivers on what it says it's going to do. Now, sin promises you pleasure. It promises you benefits. And, and the scripture acknowledges that sin has some immediate short-term benefits, a temporary moment of pleasure, but it endures for only a season. And when it is finished, uh, amen, the wages of sin is death. Uh, sin also comes uh, with a long-term curse. Uh, sin also comes uh, with the long-term bondage, uh, amen, that, that, that will bind you, that will ruin you that will break you, that will destroy you. But sin never presents the curse. Sin never presents the judgment. Sin never tells the whole story. Sin works by deception. 
It presents the benefit. It presents the pleasure. It presents this, this thing that is convenient to you, a convenient way to get what you want, a convenient way to meet some need, a shortcut to get around God's law, a shortcut to get around, amen, the, 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 the laws that are in place there. It, it's, it's an easy way. It's a quick fix. It's easy gratification, but it never presents the other side. It never exposes the chains of bondage that come with it. It never exposes the death and the hurt and the pain that come along with it sin beguiles it deceives it causes you to think that of all the people in the world you are the one person that will sin and escape bondage sin seductively convinces you that you alone will enjoy the pleasure of a momentary experience with sin and you'll reap no long-term benefits from it. You're, you're special. You can get away with it. Every, now, not everybody can do that, but sin convinces you that somehow it's going to be beneficial to you. You can do this and, and you won't carry any mark from it. You can do this and it's not going to have any long-term effect on you. you. You can get away with this. But the entire suggestion is built on a lie. Before the government began to crack down on cigarette advertising, at this point, preachers would often use, I did it a lot as a youth pastor, the Marlboro Man. If I was speaking to the youth class, they probably wouldn't even know who the Marlboro Man is. Most of you know who the Marlboro Man was. Because he was on every billboard, magazine advertisements, the billboards and magazines show a robust cowboy with a cigarette in his mouth. and All of that is attractive. It's appealing. Amen. There's a cowboy in all of us trying to get out. Can I get an amen? What, what the billboard didn't show you, though, is that same cowboy a few years later trying to hack up a lung in an intensive care unit. It doesn't show you the price. It doesn't show you the toll. It doesn't show you the long-term effect of sin. It just shows you the glamour. It shows you the momentary pleasure. It shows you the lights and all the pretty stuff. And it, and it gives you the idea that this is the quickest way to get what I want. It never shows you what it's going to cost you down the road. Sin never tells the whole truth. It brought, it, it brought death to Adam and Eve through deception. And the end result of the temptation in the long run, the cost of sin in the end, was much higher than the perceived benefit of a momentary pleasure. Because the cost of sin was death. That's the heart of sin's deception. Verse 12 says... Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. In verse 7, we started this passage, Paul asked this question. He said, is the law sin? We've, we've talked about all the evil that came, all the sin and all the death and everything that came because the law was there. Is the law sin? Is the law evil? Is the law bad? 
And in verse 12, he gives the definitive answer to the question. And it's based on the whole discussion that's taken place from verse 7 up to verse 12. And the conclusion of the matter is that the law is not sin. The law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. All three of those attributes are attributes that belong to God. God is holy. God is just. God is good. And God is the author and the source of the law. He is the giver of the law. And the nature of the law is influenced by the nature of God. The law reflects the character of God. The law reflects the righteousness of God. The law is just. It's holy. It is just. It is good. First of all, it's holy. God is holy. To be holy in a moral sense means to be totally separated from sin. To be the polar opposite of that which is unholy. God is holy in every way. He is above sin. He's above every, every notion of sin. He is light in him. There is not even the shadow of darkness. God is holy in every way feasible in every way possible and the law that he created shares his holiness it cannot be sin because it is the opposite of sin it stands as far away from sin as is possible it's holy secondly the law is just to say that god is just means that his actions meet meet are in perfect harmony with his Nature. God is good and his actions are good. That's just. God is righteous and his actions are righteous. That's just. Amen. What God says, God does. That's just. Amen. To say that the law is just. Uh, the law is just only in the sense that if a man obeys the law, it puts him in conformity with the nature of God. God is good. And if a man obeys the law, that is good. God is righteous. And if a man obeys the law, that puts a man in conformity with God's righteousness. The law was about defining for us how God wants us to live. And conformity with the law was conformity with the nature of God. And the law is just because if we obey the law, it produces a just life that is in conformity with a just God. Amen? Finally, the law is good. God's goodness is expressed in his kindness, his goodwill towards us. God's goodness is expressed in his benevolence towards us, his love for us. God desires only what is best for us. God desires only uh, what will bless us and benefit us. The law is good in the sense that it was intended for our benefit, not our detriment. It was never, it was ordained for life, not for death. The purpose of the law was good. If it was obeyed, it would bring life. It would bring goodness. It would bring blessing. If the law was embraced, if the law was fulfilled, everything that the law would have produced in our lives would have been good. Therefore, the law is good. That brings us to the final verse of the passage. 
verse 13 says, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So Paul starts this verse with a follow-up question. Having reached the conclusion then that the law is good, he asked if that which was good somehow became evil. If, if that which was good was then made, made death to me. He then answers that question rather emphatically. God forbid. We can't blame the law for our spiritual death. It was sin. And we've discussed this now for several verses. It was sin, not the law, that caused our death. Throughout this passage and throughout the two weeks that we have discussed this passage, we portrayed sin as a killer whose weapon was the law. Sin killed us. It destroyed us. It brought death and it used the law to do it. It makes no sense to blame the law for our death. The law was just the tool. Sin was the culprit. We can no more blame the law for our death than we can blame the gun that an assassin uses to kill. The assassin is the killer. The gun is the tool. The gun isn't to blame. The assassin is to blame. If a drunk driver gets in a car, goes down the highway, and takes an innocent life, we don't blame the car. We blame the drunk driver. He's the one that is at fault. He's the one that is guilty. The law is good. Sin used the law. Sin is responsible for our death, not the law. The law is good. Sin used the law as a weapon, but sin has taken advantage or has taken occasion of the law. It is sin that caused our spiritual death. So how is the law good then if sin can use the law to kill me? The law is good because it gives us the knowledge of what sin is. We have projected sin as the assassin lying in wait. The assassin hides in the dark. The assassin conceals himself. The assassin uh, uses stealth as his most important weapon. What the law does is it reveals sin. It shines the light on the assassin. It shines the light on sin. It shows us what sin is. It makes us aware of what it is that doesn't please God, what it is that transgresses the nature of God. It identifies sin. Not only does it identify sin, but by assigning a penalty to sin, the law demonstrates for us the wrongness of sin. Not only do we now know that it's wrong to covet, we also know that there's a penalty that's associated with coveting. We, we also know now not just that sin is sin, but we know the wrongness of sin because we can discern that from the penalty that goes along with sin. The law shows us what sin is, and it shows us the horror of what sin does. Sin demands death. Sin 
kills. And we learn that from the law. The law is good in that it reveals the definition of sin. It reveals the sinfulness of sin. And it shows us the result of sin. And the result of sin is death. If we truly learn the lessons that the law teaches us, then we would become totally committed to overcoming sin. We would see sin for what it really is. We would see sin for the thing that brings division between us and God. And we would turn to God in repentance. And we would use the power of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, inside of us to conquer sin on a daily basis. The law shows us how horrible it is to sin. For example, if you truly understood how much God hates lying, how much lying pollutes you spiritually, how much lying brings division between you and God, how that even a simple little untruth brings death, spiritual death into your life then you would never see lying as just a minor social indiscretion. Just a little thing that we do that doesn't. You would see it for what it really is. That's what the law does. It shows us the truth about sin. It shows us the truth about setting something else up as an idol before God. And putting something else ahead of God in our life, ahead of, ahead of serving God. When we let something else get in between us and our faithfulness to God, the law tells us what that is. And it shows us how horrible that is. And it shows us the price that that brings. And if we'd ever really see the law for what it is and see the demonstration that is there, it would, it would drive us away from some things that we, we look at sometimes and we make excuses and we justify and we make allowances. Uh, amen. The law doesn't make any allowance for sin. It shows us just how stark, black and white it can be, and just how real it is, and just how much of a division it puts between us and God. The law shows us how horrible sin is. So the law is good because it reveals the sinfulness of sin. Amen. We, we'd have no idea of what it means to be holy if we didn't have the law as a definition of righteousness. We'd have no idea what it means to live a life that pleases God if we didn't have the word of God to show us what pleases God. We, we can't even begin to strive to live a righteous life until we see sin for what it is until we recognize what sin is in our life. So the law, the verse says, makes sin appear to be sin. It shines a light on it. it. It reveals it. It helps us to see it. But it goes even further than that. Just Not just causing us to see sin. Not just making sin appear to be sin. But it shows us what sin does. It, it exposes the horror of sin. It exposes sin as a killer. It makes me see that sin works death in me. Sin is the thing that, that causes death in my life. Sin is the thing that drives a wedge of separation between me and God. When I, when I see sin, I see not just what sin is, but I see the horrible effects of sin. 
and when we recognize the utter sinfulness of sin, the death of its perverseness and its, its ungodliness, then we are compelled to strive to live a life that is better than that, to live in a way that pleases God. When we truly recognize the sinfulness of sin, when we see sin, and, make, and, and the law makes sin appear to be sin. And we see that sin works death in us. And we see that sin, because of the law, we see that sin has become exceedingly sinful. That means we see, we see the harshness of it. We see the depth of it. We see the perversion of it. We see the sinfulness of it. We, we recognize sin isn't just some small matter in God's eyes. This isn't just some small thing that God can wink at and God can ignore. This is a major, major thing. This is what drives division in between us and God. This is why God has to robe himself in flesh and go to a cross and pay a price that is terrible beyond imagination because only the blood of Jesus Christ can redeem me from sin. That's the price. And the law causes me to see the sinfulness of sin and by doing so, it compels me then to turn to the mercy of God. And seek righteousness, seek godliness, to seek to live a life that demonstrates the goodness of God. The law is holy and it is just and it is good and it calls me to live holy and just and good. And it shows me what sin is. In the end, and I'm closing with this. Even though the law was used by sin to bring about our spiritual death, the law itself is holy, it is just, and it is good because the law reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. It causes us to see sin for what it really is. And when we truly see the evil nature of sin, it should repulse us and cause us to turn towards God. For instance, a man cannot truly repent of sin until he sees the utter sinfulness of sin. As long as a man thinks his sin is excusable, he cannot genuinely repent of it. As long as you can justify your actions in your mind, you're not truly repenting of those actions. The law causes me to see that sin is unjustifiable. I can't, I can't make excuse for it. That's the only way I can come to genuine repentance. That's the only way I can come to the place where God can bless me. Is if I first realize I'm a sinner and there is no other solution. There is no other way. I can't reason my way out of this. I've transgressed the law of God and I need a Savior. Would you stand with me? If we're going to truly repent, then we have to first accept the wrongfulness of what we've done. We have to see sin. As sin, it's like the kid that got his hand caught in the cookie jar. 
so often the kid's not sorry that they got that they were trying to get a cookie. They're just sorry that they got caught trying to get a cookie. True repentance doesn't happen until we recognize that what we have done has driven a wedge between us and God.